Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your holy and sacred word. And Father, we call on you to teach us, uh, to guide us, to lead us. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. This morning we come to the conclusion of a long and prosperous study in Matthew's Gospel. And I was really curious this week uh, as to when this actually began, because I, I have forgotten, but we started this study in Matthew's Gospel in around Christmas time of 2011. So we've been in Matthew's Gospel really not entirely since that period of time, but pretty much uh, uh, three and a half years, I guess, if my math is correct. Um, so it's, it's, I think we've made pretty good time uh, considering that uh, it took John MacArthur over seven years to get through Matthew's Gospel at uh, Grace Community Church in Orange County. So I, we did it in half the time. I don't know if that says anything good or if that says anything bad. But uh, uh, nevertheless, um, I think there's been something to the tune of 138 messages preached out of Matthew's Gospel. Now, there's probably more than that because I haven't kept all of them. Charles Spurgeon was famous for telling his students to keep your sermons to weep over. And uh, Tammy will tell you it's usually around 2 o'clock on Sunday in our household when the weeping begins. So um, I don't always keep them. Uh, sometimes I'll look at them and I'll think, my goodness, uh, I should have done this a different way. And I hit the delete button uh, on them. Um, so there, there are 138 still in existence. <laughs> I don't know how many we actually, uh, how many were, were preached but uh, there are some who will uh, criticize this method of going through the book systematically verse by verse, and uh, they'll listen to this. They'll say, okay, Tri-State Community Church, you've, you've spent all this time in Matthew. What about the rest of the Bible? And uh, to, to, that sounds like a valid, a valid critique on the outset, uh, but... As we've studied Matthew's Gospel, uh, we've not studied it in isolation, have we? You know, I, in fact, Matthew's Gospel, more so than the other Gospels, is so rich in Old Testament quotations, citations, and allusions. And as we've studied Matthew's Gospel, what has that done? Uh, the tentacles of Matthew's Gospel has reached all over the Bible, hasn't it? I mean, sometimes we find ourselves in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Genesis, rather. We find ourselves in the prophets. We find ourselves in the Psalms. We find ourselves in the pastoral epistles. We find ourselves all over the Bible as we go verse by verse. So I, I, I understand those who would critique this method, but uh, I think there's a lot to be said in going verse by verse, just as we do. 
so that we can see how these books are connected. Uh, now, the, those who critique this will often say we should be using a church calendar where there's uh, really a kind of a prescribed reading, a prescribed book for uh, every particular week of the Sunday, and there you get this balance, if you will. Um, uh, to that, uh, that's fine, but I, I think really, to, to my measure of faith, I think this is the best, best method for us, is to take a biblical book and study that book with an eye as to how that book is connected to the rest of Scripture, which is what we've been doing in Matthew. And we see all these connections. And here in a few minutes, I'm going to show you some connections that are within the Gospel of Matthew itself, which really speaks to the plan of salvation, which is from Genesis to Revelation. So I, I defend this method of opening up the book, starting with verse 1 and moving all the way to the end. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't times and occasions where we'll preach topical sermons. Those are fine. Through the last three and a half, four years, we've taken breaks from Matthew. We've studied some of the Psalms. We've done a few other things as seasons have come. And uh, all of that is fine. Uh, next week, Lord willing, I hope we're going to start another series in the book of Daniel. So we're going to go to the Old Testament. When we go to the Old Testament Daniel, we're not going to be simply looking at Daniel like this, uh, just looking at Daniel, not looking at anything else. We're going to be looking at Daniel as to how the original audience would have understood Daniel. And then we're going to be looking at Daniel as to, as to how we're to understand Daniel in light of the New Testament. So obviously Daniel is going to take us uh, all over the Bible again. I think it will be amazing to see all of the connections that can be made in the book of Daniel. Uh, all of that having been said, uh, Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 through 18. Uh, this morning's message is going to focus on verses 18, 19, and 20. And really, our text, really in one sense, is the same as our Scripture memory verse this morning. The, the title of the message this morning is Christ's Authority, a Remedy for Doubt, and Empowerment for Duty. If we might think of that for a moment, you think of it as a headline, if you will. Um, Christ's authority. You might see a colon. A remedy for doubt, which would be the connection to verse 17, verses 16 and 17. And empowerment for duty, which would be the connection of verses 18, 19, and 20. Let's start with a remedy for doubt. Last week, we were really focusing on verse 17. And we saw where Jesus, verse 16, Jesus, 11, the 11 disciples go to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And uh, we don't know if it was only the 11 on the mountain. We don't know if there were others present on the mountain. Uh, some commentators believe that there were more than 500 people on the mountain. And, and this is the occasion that the Apostle Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, as I said last week, I, I don't think we can really be sure. Uh, we can be certain of this, though. The 11 were there. At least the 11 were there. And the 11 disciples show up on the mountain. We're told in verse 17 that when they saw him, they worshipped him. And that was the burden of last week's message. When they saw him, what happened? They worshipped him. Namely, when they saw not just a man, but they saw the God-man. They saw Jesus in his... In his divinity. They saw him uh, 
clothed, if you will. They saw him as he really is, fully God, not just fully man, but fully God. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Uh, Jesus permits this worship. By permitting this worship, Jesus is coalescing that he is indeed God in the flesh or would have been idolatrous for this to take place. They saw him, they worshiped him, but we're told that some doubted. Some doubted. And in verse 18, Jesus applies a remedy to those doubts. If you look at verse 18 with me, Jesus came. He comes to them. They're there to meet him. Uh, perhaps they saw him off in the distance. And some commentators will say, well, that's why they were kind of doubting. They weren't sure it was Jesus. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the best understanding, really. But there are people that, that believe that. And they would go like this. They saw him in the distance, and as he comes closer and closer, then they see him, and they, they realize it's him. I don't think that's what's going on, but that's what some will say. But the point I want to make right now is that Jesus came to them. And as he comes to them, this community that's worshiping him, some are doubting. Undoubtedly, they're all confused to a degree. Uh, this has really been, you think, the last three and a half, four weeks, actually five weeks, if you will, since Christ's resurrection. A lot of things have happened. There's not a whole lot of time for their minds and hearts to catch up to what's going on. Uh, certainly there was confusion. There was doubts, but there was also worship. Jesus provides a remedy for that. He comes to his worshiping, and in some cases doubting disciples, and he says all authority has been given to him. All authority has been given to him. And this is a remedy for doubt. You know, as we begin to have doubts, we should think of the authority of Christ. And uh, Matthew, some of you will remember, and there's a few of you here this morning that have probably sat almost in, entirely in all 138 of these messages. And you might recall, uh, we made a lot of noise about that all the way back at the beginning. If you put your bulletin in Matthew 28... Let's just take a little survey real quick of Matthew's gospel. Let's go back to the first verse in chapter 1. So we'll see a, um, a theme, if you will, that is very important to Matthew. If you look at verse 1, we see the book of the genealogy of Jesus. You know, this is the verses that some of you skip whenever you read Matthew. You got all these funny names, you know, Zerubbabel and Eliezer and Eliakim and Zadok and Achim and all these names. How do you pronounce these names? And what are we to make of this? Well, the very first message in Matthew's gospel was on all these names. Some of you may recall that. But notice verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of who? Son of David, son of Abraham. Now, incidentally, the son of Abraham's really been a lot of the focus on Wednesday nights as we've been studying the covenant of grace. We've been looking at those great promises that God has made to Abraham, namely that in Abraham, one of his children will eventually come, and in Abraham, through this child, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Every family in the earth will be blessed through this. Uh, Jesus is, he is the one. He is the child of Abraham. That's a story for another day. The focus I want to, uh, what I want to focus on this morning is the son of David. 
Now, what is significant about that? Well, that also points to another covenantal promise that's made to David in 2 Samuel 7, where God says to David, one of your sons who will succeed you will uh, sit upon your throne and his kingdom will endure forever. So those who would have been reading this, uh, Matthew being written to largely a Jewish audience, had we been first century Jews reading this gospel for the first time, when we saw Son of David, we'd be making those connections. We'd be making those connections. That Matthew is claiming that Jesus is that Son of David who will sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will last forever. When we begin to study Daniel, we're going to be returning to this theme, actually. Daniel is full of this theme of the kingship of Jesus Christ. So here in the first verse, we have this claim, this kingdom, if you will. And then when we come to verse 2, Jesus now, second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, steps into time and history through the virgin womb of Mary, and no sooner does he does, no sooner does he uh, do this, than these mysterious characters from the east, who we call wise men or we call magi, uh, they come looking to worship he who has been born what, king of the Jews. And uh, we have that whole theme here of Herod, and uh, Herod learns of this, and he hears this this king of the Jews business, and you have that old adage, you know, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Uh, one of us has got to go. And, of course, Herod, he can't find Jesus. His desire is to kill him. Uh, he can't find him. So uh, being a, a monster, an absolute monster, in verse 16 through 18, he orders the slaughter of all of the children that are approximately uh, the age that Jesus would have been. Uh, so we have this idea of, kingship already again when we get to chapter 3 John the Baptist comes he's the forerunner of Christ in verse 2 he says repent for what the kingdom of heaven is at hand but the idea of king again the idea of kingdom you know he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare prepare the way for this king prepare the way for the Lord make his path straight that whole language is language of of kingship. It speaks of, a, of, of um, a process that nations still do to this day whenever kings travel, or presidents or important dignitaries when they travel. Uh, they prepare the way for their past. I was in Pittsburgh one, one time when uh, the president was in town, and I was trying to get to the other side of Pittsburgh. And it was very difficult because the entire parkway was closed from Pittsburgh Airport to his destination downtown. There wasn't a car going either direction on the parkway. Uh, if that didn't make a mess in Pittsburgh, I'll tell you what, it was during a, a high traffic time when Pittsburgh's a mess anyway. Uh, but it was really kind of neat in one respect to see. I, I actually saw the, the motorcade. Uh, that was it. There was nothing else, in, nothing else uh, uh, on, the, on the street other than that. Uh, this is what's in view here. Uh, make way, make his path straight. Uh, clear all obstacles out of his way. When we come to chapter 4, uh, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. 
And if you look at verse 8, the devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him what? All of the kingdoms. The kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to him, listen, uh, forget about this mission that the Father has you on. You don't need to embark in this three years of suffering and you don't need to go through all that. Listen, all you need to do is worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus, of course, is functioning here as the second Adam, isn't he? First Adam in the garden is tempted, he falls. Second Adam, Jesus, he's in the wilderness and he succeeds. He refuses the devil's offer. And Lotus, verse 17, now Jesus himself began to preach saying, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus begins to preach. And over through the Gospels, we find this little phrase that, oh, his preaching was fantastic. It wasn't like all the scribes and the, and the elders and the Pharisees and all these other pastors that are running around. No, 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 no. He preached as one who had authority. He really preached. Of course he preached as one who had authority. He's the king. Of course, he preached as one who had authority. And we have the Sermon of the Mount, a very authoritative uh, uh, section of Scripture which we spent over a year on, if you'll recall. And then in chapters 8, uh, Jesus begins to embark on his healing ministry. He shows his authority over leprosy, uh, shows his authority over various diseases, shows his authority over nature, if you will. He calms the storm in verses 23 through um, uh, 27, and then heals a paralytic in chapter 9, and you know the story. Jesus begins to show his authority over the demonic realm. He's showing his authority through every aspect, raising, raising uh, people from the dead, showing his authority over even death. And that brings us to chapter 27, if you will, which we have studied very, very recently. And interestingly enough, as Jesus is uh, suffering under the hands of the soldiers, uh, notice that they're mocking him, saying, Hail what? Hail, King of the Jews. Now here that kingship is still in view, only they're making fun of him. They're making a mockery of it. They put that phony scepter, that rod in his hand. They take a crown of thorns. Oh, you want to be a king? We'll make you a king. Put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a purple, scarlet a robe on him and tear it back off. They beat him with the crown of thorns. He is then crucified and a sign is put above his head. Uh, Jesus, King of the Jews. Was, so we see through this quick survey of Matthew's Gospel that this kingship, this kingdom theme goes, it's threaded all the way through the fabric of the entire Gospel. This is a powerful remedy for doubts. Yeah, I, I quickly point all this out to you because as doubts come, um, this, is a, uh, this is a quick little remedy for it. And we begin to doubt. What can conquer our doubts? Someone with authority can conquer our doubts. When we begin to doubt, well, let's look to the king. And incidentally, Donald put a great little... Um, article on our website on the Facebook page written by Alistair McGrath. I read it yesterday afternoon. In fact, I liked it so much that I, I copied it. I photocopied it and Tammy will have to do something with it so I know where it is when I need it. But uh, 
it's, it's on the printer waiting for her to do whatever it is she does. She does things with things, and, and um, I'm able to ask her, and she knows where they are. And when I do things with things, I, I don't have anybody to ask, and I have no clue where they are. So um, that's how that works. But uh, it's a great little article on doubt, and I, I commend it to you. So here we have Christ's authority. It's a great remedy for a doubt, but it's also an empowerment for duty. And normally, I think, whenever you hear sermons on verses 18, 19, and 20, it's duty that's in mind. Uh, duty. This isn't all duty. We're going to see here in a few minutes. But it's largely duty. It's what, what as a church of Jesus Christ, uh, what are we supposed to be doing? And verses uh, 18, 19, and 20 answer those questions. And if you look at verse 19, Jesus says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded. It's often pointed out that we have four imperatives there. We have going, making disciples, baptizing, and teaching them to observe or to obey all that Christ has commanded. Uh, the, the most important of these um, of these imperatives would happen to be, um, I'm seeing two little hands stick up in the window every once in a while. It's kind of, uh, never mind, for, strike that comment. I, I don't know why I had to share that with you, but I'm looking straight back, and, and the kids, they must be doing some kind of little uh, thing, but uh, you're allowed to look back if you want. It's so cute. <laughs> every once in a while, little hands, will, there they go, see them, see the little hands? I don't think those are kids. I think those are Liz's hands going up and down, but... Uh, Oh, it's so cute. It looks like they're having a good time back there. This is so important. It has nothing to do with Matthew, but it has everything to do with memories being created in the church that uh, some of us are very blessed to have. So yeah, pray for that activity that goes on back there. Where was I? Making disciples. It's hard to, to see that. It's hard not to be distracted by it. Make, making disciples. Jesus is, the main thrust of the text here is to make disciples. Obviously, the going has a purpose. I've heard messages on this where so much emphasis was on the going, and oftentimes it, it's kind of a guilt trip, if you will. Have you ever heard any of those guilt trip messages on this, that you need to go, it's time to go, it's time to go, and there's really no emphasis on, well, okay, we're supposed to go. What in the world are we supposed to do? Well, the main theme here is to make disciples. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. And make disciples. Oh, now, oh, I think the first question we need to ask ourselves here as we, as we think of this is, okay, well, all right, what's that look like? What is that? Um, how do we make disciples? And what is a disciple? I think the simplest definition that we could give uh, to a disciple is a learner. Uh, literally, I think that's what it means. A disciple is a learner. Uh, however, that is... Um, a bit deceptive. If we left the definition at that, um, we could miss the point because there are people in the church that are very curious and they're always learning facts and always learning things, uh, always learning and learning and learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. And we can store up all kinds of information and we can be learners but not disciples of Christ. So that's an inadequate definition. I think the best place for us to go would be just to turn back to Matthew 11. Just put your bulletin in Matthew 28. It should already be there, but turn back to Matthew 11 to a passage 
very famous passage, very important passage. Uh, verses 28, 29, and 30, some of you, as soon as you hear that, you already know where we're going. Uh, but I think most of us, when we get there, will recognize these verses. Interestingly enough, they begin with the words, Come to me. See there, 11, 28, come to me. And Matthew 28, Jesus came to them. Um, here Jesus is calling us to come to me. Who is to come to him? All who labor and are heavy laden. All who labor and are heavy laden. Well, what does all that mean? Well, in the context of this, uh, we see the, the woes to the unrepentant cities. We see the, really the, uh, um, the reprimand in verses 16, 17, and 18. Uh, following the messengers that come from John the Baptist. Jesus says in verse 16, What shall I compare this generation? It's like a children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates. Uh, verse 18, he says, For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he is a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. In other words, what's Jesus doing in all of this? He's saying you're all like a bunch of children. Um, you're all like a bunch of selfish bunch of selfish, stubborn children. Uh, here Jesus is, he, uh, John the Baptist before him, preaching the message of the gospel, preaching the message of the good news that the kingdom of heaven has arrived, and they'll have none of it. Uh, they're rejecting him, which leads him in verse 20 to begin to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done. This is up in Galilee. If you look at a map of the Holy Land, uh, you have Judah, which is in the south, then you have Samaria, uh, and then you have Galilee just above that. And some of you recall, for a long time as we were studying Matthew's gospel, they were constantly crossing the lake. Remember, they crossed the lake, and then they crossed the lake, then they crossed the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. A lot of, of, of Jesus' work and activity takes place up there. And Jesus says to them, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. This, by the way, would have been a strong word. He's pointing to heathen Gentiles and saying, listen, if they'd have had the privileges that you had, they would have repented a long time ago. That would have been a sore message that probably wouldn't have went over very well. Verse 22, but I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if mighty works done in you had been done in, Sod in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Um, very, very sore message there. And then in the midst of this sore message, Jesus gives this invitation. In verse 28, come to me. Come to me. Who? All who labor and are heavy laden. Labor and heavy laden. Those who are burdened. Those who are sensitive to the fact that they're sinners. Those who have been trying to follow the teaching of the day that it's through this meticulous um, battery of dues and this meticulous battery of following this particular prescription for this law and following that law and following this law and following that law and following this law following that law that we can get to heaven and those who are sensitive to this kind of thing who really are trying to deal with their sin debt find themselves under an enormous burden 
I mean, if you're sensitive to the fact that you are a sinner, if you're sensitive to the fact that God is holy, if you're sensitive to the fact that God is just, this can be very, this can be torture. How am I going to be able to stand in the courtroom of a holy and just God? Now, the culture that we're in doesn't really ask that question. The culture that we're in, we're, we're a bunch of happy moralists. Uh, we, we find it as a culture, find it hard to believe God would do anything but welcome us into heaven. Uh, we're completely insensitive to anything that's holy today or anything really that is just. What is justice? Justice is whatever's right in our own eyes as a culture. What is holiness? Probably the closest thing you're going to find to holiness in this valley is the terrible towel. There's very little that's holy today. These concepts aren't even in the, they're not even on the horizon of the way people think today. But occasionally you'll run into people who the Holy Spirit is working on. And these people aren't whining and complaining about how things aren't going right for them. They're not whining and complaining about all the things other people have done to them. They're looking at what they have done. They're looking at the fact that they are sinners. They're looking at the fact that God is just. They're looking at the fact that God is holy. They're trying to keep the law, but they keep failing. They're falling into despair. And it's to these people that Jesus says, listen, come to me. Step out of that proud world and come to me. You're not going to find me to be a tyrant. Take my yoke upon you. And the word yoke is very important here because the Jews often refer to a yoke as the law. There they are burdened down under the law and the law is condemning them. The law is torturing them. Jesus is saying, listen, take, get, that, get, that, get that yoke off of you and put my yoke on you. And you'll find rest for your souls. Because my burden is light. That's what discipleship looks like. It's saying, you know what? I can't get to heaven in my own works. I can't get to heaven in my own... I, I, the only way I'm going to get to heaven is just to fall down, cast myself to the mercy of God, and cry out for mercy. And discipleship happens as we see the mercy that's available in Christ Jesus. Then we quit complaining about all the stuff other people have done to us. We keep complaining about all of our situations, complaining about this guy, quit complaining about that guy, quit complaining about the other guy. We start to really take ownership of the crap we've done. And we come to Jesus to be cleansed of that. And through this, we take Christ's yoke upon us. What is that? What is it to take Christ's yoke upon us? That's to say, I give up. I want to follow you, Jesus. I am all yours. You take the sin away from me. You take, you, you take all of this filth away from me. You give me a new heart. You're giving me a new life. Well, in response to that, I will take your yoke. I will take your yoke upon me. What is that? That's the, that's, that's the light burden of following Jesus. Now, someone might say, well, wait, that don't sound like a very light burden, following Jesus. I've been following Jesus for a long time. And I can tell you what, ever since I've been following Jesus, 
things haven't been very easy. In fact, um, don't you remember, Rick? Don't you remember chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14 where Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. How can you say it's easy? Jesus is saying that it's hard. Both are correct. Anybody in this room who's following Jesus seriously realizes it's not easy, is it? To go against the grain, against the pattern of this world, to follow Jesus, you find yourselves in all kinds of situations where doing the right thing is costly. You don't really want to do the right thing. You want to do the wrong thing. A lot of times we don't do the right thing. We do the wrong thing, don't we? And then that's what that, that If you're in Christ Jesus and you've done the wrong thing, then what happens to you after that? Well, now you're down on your face, you're before God, you're wanting to get it right. It's not easy. So how can Jesus say that his burden is light? How can he say his yoke is light? It's because if you've ever been crushed with guilt, if you've ever been crushed with shame, if you've ever been crushed by the law, uh, well, you understand that that's very difficult too, isn't it? In one sense, the yoke of Christ is... It's very easy. Why? Because Jesus is not a tyrant. Jesus gets under the yoke with you. He walks with you. He's a, he's a king that doesn't just say to his subjects, listen, um, you guys need to do all this stuff, and after you've done all this stuff, you get back to me. In the meantime, I'm going to be in my air-conditioned office, and, and uh, I'm going to be in there, and I don't know, I'm going to do whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing. You guys get out in the hot sun, and you guys do all this. That's not, what, that's not the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus can invite us. In. He can invite us to come to him because he's not, he's not cooped up in an air-conditioned office. Where is Christ? He's with us everywhere we go. Look at, go back to Matthew 28 and look at the last thing that he says. He says, behold, I am with you when? Some of the time? I'm with you once in a while? He says, I'm with you always. I'm going to be with you this afternoon, but uh, come Monday, I'm going to be back in my plush up. No, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So as, in one sense, following Christ, in one sense, taking this, this idea of, Becoming a disciple of Jesus, in one sense, it's terribly hard. Matthew 7, it's terribly hard. In fact, Jesus tells us, call it to costs. Don't just do this, count the costs. But in another sense, I mean, in terms of the alternative, of going through this world without Christ, of walking in wickedness, walking in wickedness is hard. As hard as it is to walk in righteousness, every time you walk in wickedness, you make your life more complex. You make your life more complicated. You burn bridges. Uh, you, you do all of this stuff that makes your life practically impossible to live. The longer you're in wickedness, the worse your life becomes, the harder it is to live. And that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, my burden is light. My burden is light. So what is Jesus calling us to do? He's calling us to go out and make disciples. He's calling us to go out and turn the hearts of people from their wickedness to Christ Jesus and His righteousness. So in other words, we're called to go preach the gospel, aren't we? That's the only way to do that. But if some of you are sitting here thinking about this, you're thinking, wait a second, um, only God can do that. 
Only God can turn a person from their wickedness to their righteousness. That's right. Only God can do that. And if you're connecting the dots, you're saying, oh, wait a second, Jesus is calling us to do something we can't do. Yep. He's calling us to do something we can't do. In fact, I don't know if you thought about it. You know, uh, in the news, they had that, uh, that uh, space, I don't know if it's a satellite or what it is. I'm not really into that kind of thing, but I know it's getting close to Pluto, and they're getting, they, they, what's it been, like seven years or something? The rocket that went off the ground was the, was the, the, the qu quickest rocket that's ever been launched from the Earth. I think it only took it like nine hours to get to the moon or something, moving at like 30,000 miles an hour. This thing, and it's now it's seven or years, I think it is, it's now nearing Pluto. That's a monumental achievement, isn't it? That they can even communicate with the thing that far away is a monumental achievement. But I would submit to you that this is even greater than that. What is Jesus calling us to do? He's calling us to make disciples. Where are we to make these disciples? Everywhere. We're to go uh, to all the nations, make disciples of all nations. You know, when we think about the consummation of Jesus' kingdom, which we were looking at in Matthew 24, we think Jesus, just before he returns, uh, at the time of judgment, he's going to send his angels out to all four corners of the world to gather, right? Well, prior to sending the four angels out to all four corners of the world, he's sending his church out to all four corners of the world. That's the whole idea of going. We don't have to really go very far to find people that need Jesus. Some of us are called to go a good distance away, but for the most part, most of us are being called to go right here, right where we are. But we're being called to a task that's humanly impossible. And this is actually the greatest task that human beings have ever been called to do. Because the results are eternal. If God is pleased to use one of you to lead someone to Jesus, it's a wonderful thing. And those of you who have had that privilege, those of you who have done it, understand it's a great privilege to lead someone to Christ. I'm very thankful that God has used me in this way in many, on many occasions. And one thing that I always think of, one thing I like to ponder on is I, is I think when I'm, getting, when I'm getting a little bit down, I'm thinking, What's, what, what are we doing here? Are we making any progress? I'll think about that. I'll think about, well, wow. What about such and such? Yeah, they're still following Jesus. Yeah, and when, when such and such gets to heaven and 10,000 years have gone by, guess what? They're still going to be following Jesus. See, the work that God's calling us to is eternal. It's eternal work. It's work that we can't do. It's work that only God can do, but He's using us in it, isn't He? He's using us in it. And what an extraordinary privilege it is to be able to be used in this way. And the last thought that I want to give you, actually this, is we're talking about authority, and we're talking about authority giving us empowerment. Okay? Here's one last thought I want to give you. What gives us the right to run all over this world and proclaim Jesus? Because sometimes people will say to you, I mean, what right do you have talking about Jesus here? Or what right to, what, what makes you think that you have the right to tell us that Jesus is the only way uh, to heaven? What, what gives you the right to say these kinds of things? Now, what's the answer to that question? You know, it's the answer that you give in Sunday school or wherever you're at when you don't really know the answer. You just say, Jesus? 
And it's like usually the right answer. And in this case, it is the right answer. What, what right did I have to go down to the Clark Field and preach the gospel? What right did we have to go down and do that together? What, what right do we have to go to the workplace and at the water cooler, share things about Jesus? What right do we have to do that? Matthew 28. Jesus has given us the right to do that. As he's empowered us for duty. He's the king. We're to obey all kings until they tell us to do something that's contrary to the king. Christ has told us to publish the good news of the gospel. And he's where the buck stops. Where do we get the right to do this? We get it from Jesus. Now, let's not use that as a license to be overbearing and bombastic and uh, let's please use taste here because we're called to do it in love. We're called to do it in respect. We're, let's be respectful as we do this. And, and I, I don't say this because I suspect anybody here is not being respectful. I just don't want to, I don't want to steer you the wrong way and say, well, you know what, it don't matter what this, I'm just going to start, I'm just going to start firing away here, guns a blazing. No, we're to, we're to, we're to use our heads here. But if someone were to say to you, what gives you the right to tell me about Jesus? Well, your response should just be a very loving and very calm. Jesus does. Jesus has given me that right. And there's no authority above Christ. And his resurrection proves it. What a wonderful text, huh? What a wonderful gospel. Kind of sad to see it go, isn't it? Well, it's not going anywhere. But next week we'll be looking at Daniel. But until then, we see that the authority of Jesus has the ability to cast out doubt, doesn't it? And it also empowers, doesn't it? Empowers us to duty. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so thank you for these words that you've given us. We thank you for loving us so that you would give us these words. We thank you for the right and the privilege, O oh Lord, to be part of what you're doing in Christ Jesus, uh, building your church, building your kingdom, O oh Father. And we pray, O oh Lord, that uh, these words may empower us afresh this morning, that uh, these words would uh, be used to uh, remedy any doubts that are in our hearts and in our minds, and that uh, these words also would be used to empower us afresh. Oh, Father, as we go through this world, as we go through our various uh, uh, days and hours that you've given us here, that we would be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen.